tragedy hung fresh on the hearts of the weary residents of Montecito, California, as they drifted to sleep on January 8, 2018. Throughout the previous month, they had witnessed untold suffering. Their community had been ravaged by what was then the largest wildfire in modern California history. Since early December, the Thomas Fire had burned more than 280,000 acres, destroyed more than 1,000 structures, and caused nearly $2 billion in damages. As the citizens of Montecito fell asleep, they could at least rest in peace that although the fire had forced 100,000 Californians to evacuate, it had only resulted in two deaths to that point. Unfortunately, that was about to change. At around 3.30 in the morning, the pre-dawn stillness was interrupted by an eruption of rainfall. It came suddenly and it came quickly. Within five minutes, more than a half inch of rain had fallen. Large raindrops plopped onto rooftops that had been spared by the fire. They pounded charred trees and they landed on burnt hilltops above the community. There, the falling water mixed with soil that had been dramatically changed by the recent fire. The charred ground was loaded with newly formed hydrocarbons that repelled these raindrops and sent them sliding down hillsides rather than being absorbed into the soil. As the water rushed downhill, it picked up ash and char left by the fire, increasing its force and setting off rapid erosion, mud flows, and debris flows that obliterated everything in their path. The sudden chain of events killed 23 people, destroyed 129 homes, and damaged more than 300 others. The intensity and frequency of wildfires in the United States is increasing. This is particularly felt in the arid western portion of the country, where every state has experienced an increase in the number of large fires over the past decade, according to the National Interagency Fire Center. The immense devastation wrought by those fires is compounded by a lesser-known threat. Flood risks increase exponentially after a wildfire due to sediment hazards, vegetation loss, soil changes, and the reduced capacity of reservoirs. Destructive debris floods can be 1,000 times larger than pre-wildfire floods. In the past, a limited understanding of this increased risk left fire-torn communities particularly vulnerable to flooding. New research and improved modeling are critical to better manage the impact of debris flows, save lives, and protect infrastructure and property. That's why a team of Erdic researchers is developing new modeling techniques that accurately predict the areas at highest risk for deadly debris flows. When the fire ends, Erdic's work begins. I'm Chris Kiefer, and with co-host Megan Holland, this is the Power of Erdic podcast. Today, we are joined by Ian Floyd, a research physical scientist at Erdic's Coastal and Hydraulics Laboratory. We'll talk with Ian about how Erdic is working to solve the challenges presented by post-wildfire floods. So we're here with Ian and excited to get going on our first podcast of the series. Yes, this is something we've been looking forward to for a long time. So we're finally in the studio. Ian, thank you for joining us for our very first podcast in the series. You're welcome. So I'm wondering if you could start off by explaining what makes it so difficult to model and predict post-wildfire flooding. 
Absolutely. Megan, Chris, I want to thank you both for having me here today for the initial podcast. It's obviously very exciting for me to be here. There's a lot of things that really lead to the risk and the issues associated with predicting and really understanding post-wildfire flooding. Uh, It really starts with our poor quantitative understanding of these physical processes. Uh, And then really, it also results in a very complicated set of physics that are required to predict this. You know, what we're really trying to do is understand that in this heuristic or simple framework so that we can implement this uh, very quickly and proactively at our districts and, and across the U.S. Ian, we kind of tease this, I guess, a little bit in the intro. I feel like probably a lot of our, our listeners have never considered the fact that flooding is different after wildfire than it would have been before the wildfire. In a lot of that, I guess on a basic level, is just because of the way the fire has changed the properties of the ground and so forth. Absolutely. So the fire, depending on the intensity and the duration of the fire, you can have alterations of your soil, soil structure. The most important really process that's altered is your vegetation. So you lose your ground roughness. So your grasses and your shrubs are gone. You also lose your inception canopy in the larger trees. And what I mean by that is if you have a raindrop that falls, following a wildfire, that raindrop is going to have a, a significantly greater chance of impacting the soil and thus running off. What led Erdick to get involved with this? That's a good question. So in 2014, Albuquerque District was posed with a problem that really no other districts had had to face at the time. The Los Conches wildfire had just burned. It was the largest in state history at that time. And it was just upstream of Cochiti Reservoir, which is a USACE-operated uh, reservoir for water control, irrigation, flood control. There really was a lot of uncertainty of what would happen into the system. A statement of need was developed by the district and myself and was submitted uh, to the Civil Works R&D program and was selected to get funding for research. In that effort, we identified really the fundamental things that the Army Corps has to do to get better at post-fire flood risk management, which has led us to where we are today. That included not only understanding what's going on following a wildfire, how the ecology recovers over time following the wildfire, but then understanding how the Army Corps and how agencies model this, and then how can we improve upon that and significantly reduce the uncertainty. Uh, And in that, we also have feedback so that as we make developments, we're feeding it right back into the districts through that process. And that's really what got Erdick involved in, in the whole effort. So Ian, I understand you and your team are using a new science in developing these models. Can you explain a little bit about what makes this unique and how it's different from what's been done before? Great question, Megan. So really the new science we're looking at is, is taking older existing methodologies that are very poorly understood quantitatively and bringing them up to an understanding to where we can predict them in our USACE models. This is very important because existing capabilities require an extensive amount of time or knowledge to operate these models. We would term these, uh, this new model science that we're really looking at as non-Newtonian mechanics or fluid behavior. And so really what we've done is we've brought that to the forefront and included that into our numerical model so that we could account for things like debris flows and mud flows within our very simple generalized USACE models. The other areas of science in this is that we have very poor understanding of some of the physical relationships. So for example, we really don't know how a given temperature and a duration of that temperature affects the soil and to what depth. And so there are a lot of basic research questions in this that we're looking at along with applied research questions that uh, we're really formulating to address these concerns. I've heard you use the term non-Newtonian a lot when you're referring to the science. From a a 50,000-foot view, can you kind of explain both what that means and why that's important here? Absolutely. So there are a few reasons why this is important. I think I'll kind of explain the phenomenon and give some some 
timely analogies. So we really start to think of non-Newtonian fluids more like honey or molasses than water. And why that's important is because uh, really two main phenomena that we deal with, it's momentum and mass, but it's also a phenomenon we call hindered settling. Okay, let's say for example, for hindered settling, we have two beakers. One beaker has honey in it, the other beaker has water. We drop a steel BB into that beaker. As you can imagine, the BB in the water is gonna settle faster. That's a very similar phenomenon that we would see in post-fire flooding. As a result, we see massive boulders and fluvite, which are boulders the size of, say, excavators, that are moved tremendous distances. The other aspect of this that's, I think, very interesting is the extra mass that the flow has. So the analogy I like to use is if you have two slopes that are the same, you have tires on a train and tires on a car. Initially, the car may actually overtake the train, but eventually, because the train has more mass and more momentum, it will overtake the car and run or travel a significant distance further. And so those are the two main areas that we're really concerned with. So post-fire flooding, because of its non-Newtonian nature, can erode and transport larger material, and it actually transports material further downstream. And so you may be in a, a location to where you think you would be safe, but because of that non-Newtonian behavior uh, and that train extra mass, you do have that extra momentum that really extends out the, the risk associated with post-fire flooding. And it's, it's the changes that have come from the scarring, from the wildfire, changes Absolutely. to the ground is what causes it, those non-Newtonian behaviors. Exactly. So again, what we get back to is, is you create a lot of ash and you develop duff layers. You remove your ground surface so you don't have vegetation uh, or shrubs or grass to slow the water down. The other thing you do is that every raindrop is going to hit the ground because you have no upper canopy. A lot of those trees have been destroyed. You have full crown burn especially in fire settings that are what we would call high severity burns. Uh, and in those settings, you are going to have extreme runoff and extreme sedimentation processes that result in this non-Newtonian behavior. So you all are able to develop models and tell communities, you know, this is what's likely to happen. These are the risks now. What is the application? How can this, you know, help a community? The fire has just happened. The flood event could happen any time now. You know, there's not enough time maybe to put yes. new infrastructure in, whatever. Talk about the impact that your research can have. Absolutely. So I think there are, you know, two components that when we think about our research here with the Army Corps is flood risk management and emergency management. So really your question is really related more to the emergency management, uh, which we are getting into now. I will say that more formally, we have looked at flood risk management, but we have realized that our tools can help assess situations that are emergency management driven. So in that condition, what you would want to have uh, would be results that would show what is the maximum inundation potential for a range of rainfall events. So we usually look at uh, return frequency. So is it a 10-year flood? Is it a 50-year flood? Or is it a 100-year flood? After a wildfire, that changes dramatically. So a 50-year flood may be a 500 or 5,000-year flood. And so what we do with our new physics is that we provide them with a very accurate representation of what that downstream runout is going to be, uh, what the velocities and arrival times are going to be so that proper evacuations can be done and proper warnings can be distributed to the community. The other thing that we can do in our modeling that I think is also equally important is start to assess preliminary remediation. So things like contour felling or mulching or widespread plantings can have near-term effects. And using our modeling, we can actually 
subtly account for those changes to really understand what any given remediation impact will actually have on flood risk management or emergency management. And, and another point that I'll make, Chris, on the long-term flood risk management, you know, really there is the immediate assessment of their risk, but then there is a long-term recovery process that they have to deal with. And so our capabilities really provide them with a significant reduction in uncertainty in the emergency management phase and as they transition into the, the long-term flood risk management. So really we encompass both of those mission spaces and it's important to do that because what we find is that if you somewhat mess up your emergency management phase, it can be a big struggle to play catch up in your near-term or long-term flood risk management. So a community contacts you, they, they need help. What exactly do you do for them? There are quite a few things, actually. That's a, re that's a really good question. So uh, it depends on the community and if they've had an existing relationship with our partners in the Western U.S., whether that's Los Angeles district or, or one of the other districts. What I typically do is reach out directly to our district partner, then we schedule a meeting with them, and we really try to understand what their problem is. That's our first step. What's your problem? And it's really discover, develop, deliver. And so in this case, uh, if, if I'm reaching out, sans pandemic, we load up, we travel out there, we go to the fire site, we do a geomorphic assessment. So basically just a field assessment to determine, you know, what's the existing condition and what are the risks. And then usually in a very short period of time, we do preliminary modeling to give them some screening level assessment of what their risk is, where the risk is the highest, and then really what level of uncertainty we have at that point for screening level that they can use to set up their long-term flood risk management plan. So really it's a few things and I'll just recap. So the first is an understanding of what their problem is. The second is providing technical support. You know, they're not the first ones to deal with this. And a lot of times when communities understand that other communities have done X, Y, and Z, and if they do X, Y, and Z, they're gonna have a lot less risk associated with that. And so a lot of it is a discovery from them of what we're doing, and then a very quick and precise implementation of our screening level tools to give them an understanding of how much, how far, and how long. And, and in that I'm relating to, you know, how much sediment runoff, how long are they gonna be uh, burdened with this, and then how much sediment or how much debris would they may have maybe have to contend with. So ultimately, you will give them the pieces they need to either prevent or mitigate the effects of a uh, post wildfire. Absolutely, flood. absolutely. And it's really the the quanti the quantitative metrics that we use so reduce the uncertainty that they can start to do planning and do these activities uh, and really well before the fire is extinguished. Which I think is an important point to make. So in a lot of these fires, so with Santa Barbara, what happened is you had the 2017 Thomas fire. Well, at the very beginning of 2018 in January, you had an atmospheric river that ended up being about a 500 year precip event. Well, that resulted in a tremendous destruction and things that we had mentioned before in the podcast. And so the challenge then becomes modeling it soon enough in the process so that you can have confidence to reduce that end product, whatever that may be. And so for us, it's, it's getting ahead of the curve also. So they have more informed information sooner. How many communities have you been able to help so far? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, before the podcast, I was trying to, to count the number. I, I think we're at about 22 to 24 different communities that, that we're able to help. Uh, but with that, I will say that that is enlisting assistance from each of these districts. So what we like to do is the district will receive a request for assistance. Uh, we coordinate with the district on what that response looks like, how we utilize our new capabilities, 
And then we let the districts implement this and work with these communities to address these. So in that respect, you know, we're at about 22 to 24 different communities uh, that span from Colorado to Oregon, to California, to Nevada, to Arizona, uh, and then really all the other states in between that I've missed. So if a community wants to partner with Arctic, partner with you guys, do they contact their local USACE district? Yes. Yeah, so they would reach out to their local USACE district. So for example, uh, the first effort that we really uh, implemented and demonstrated these new capabilities in 2018, 2019 was with Santa Barbara. In that situation, what we did is we allowed the Los Angeles district to take the lead on communication and we provided uh, robust technical support for them along the way. We also were able with our internal funding to leverage our capabilities and our funding to provide them a more robust answer more quickly. Ian, I know this was a particularly bad year, it seems like for wildfires, and and now we're kind of getting into the flood season. Yes. How prepared are we for that as a country? How worried are you about that? Uh, Scale to one to 10, like a seven. It is a risk. I will say that compared to four years ago, it was a 10. 10 being the worst, obviously. So now um, the risk is there for certain regions, but also feel very comfortable with our existing partners and their ability to to extend these applications. So for example, Los Angeles District, uh, Portland District, Walla Walla District, Albuquerque District, a lot of these districts, we've actually trained them. Uh, We've done workshops. We've demonstrated the capabilities with them so that they can continue to execute the mission. I, I will say that outside of some of those regions, and in communities that may not be aware of what we're doing and the significance, it can be a challenge. So there has been cases in the past where a lot of communities haven't had to deal with this before. There are regions of the U.S. that have historically had more fires, therefore have had to deal with this more. But again, the science was very basic uh, and it was driven with a lot of empiricism. Uh, so for, what, for our purposes in the Army Corps, We really have to try to get away from that and reduce that uncertainty. And so in the future, it's going to require tech and knowledge transfer between us and then these communities and then broader applications of these new tools and capabilities. Ian, we've talked a lot about the Civil Works application, which is a huge part of this. I know you've got a military background, so you are kind of thinking in some of those terms, too. Are there military applications to this as well? Absolutely. So, you know, my time in the military taught me that, uh, and I've learned this, this is kind of uh, a bit comic. There is certainly a difference between military thinking and civil works thinking, but a lot of those benefits from a military background has bled over. And in this, absolutely. There are a few things that concern me for post-fire military operations and, and really installation management. Uh, and I alluded to this, so that really the, the two things are operation and mobility. Uh, the other is, is installation management. Uh, in the Western US, as you've mentioned, every fire is seeing an increase. And it's not only an increase in the number, it's an increase in the intensity of the fires, which is very important. And so for me, it's a matter of time before military installations are really gonna have to uh, deal with this more broadly. The other concern I have is that during military operations, we need to be able to operate at all times. And so let's say that you're trying to forge across a stream. Well, if this stream is having a debris flow or some hyper-concentrated flow event, what you end up happening is, is you have more mass in that slurry, as I've alluded to earlier. So do do existing military infrastructure account for that or can they? And so, yeah, I have a few concerns. Uh, Right now, our primary focus is civil works, but we are certainly looking at opportunities to leverage and assist with military concerns as well. 
So Ian, your experience in the military, has it affected the way that you look at these projects and the way that you go about helping others? Oh, absolutely. And the military teaches you that you really need to be more proactive with addressing problems. And so for this, we have taken a very proactive approach. Really, the other thing from the military that really came to me later as I've developed and worked through this is that the approach we've taken is very pragmatic. You know, it's it's really we have this problem. We're going to have to deal with this problem. It's likely not going to change for the foreseeable future. So how do we best reduce our risk associated with urbanization and development in these fire prone regions? And so for me, it's about helping people. That's why I'm here. It's all about going to these communities and, and seeing that they have a need and then being able to help them. Uh, there's nothing quite like that. For more resources on post-wildfire flood risk management, you can visit powerofurticpodcast.org. We'll have some videos there. Ian, you've got a neat slide. Yeah, we're going to have some slides, videos, and I think some background material on, on really what we do and what our capabilities are. So look for that. We'll have a lot more information there. And if anyone has any uh, direct things they could reach out to me, you can email me at wildfires at urdic.drin.mil. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for joining us today. Thank yeah, you all so much. Ian, thank you so much for being here. Before Erdic began its post-wildfire flooding research, predicting the potential for post-wildfire flooding was like making automobiles prior to Henry Ford. You could do it, but it was costly. Erdic's research has standardized the process so everyone in the world can readily access the framework and address these problems. To date, Erdic has worked with roughly 30 communities, giving them access to the capabilities to accurately predict their inherent risks of post-wildfire flooding. This includes the ability to make predictions in the middle of a wildfire, or even to model potential future fire situations and what the resulting risk would be. The Power of Arctic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. For more information, visit us online at powerofarcticpodcast.org. You can also contact us at powerofarcticpodcast at usace.army.mil or find us on all major podcast players. We'll be back in February. See you soon.